0: Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 118, Generation X. Hello and welcome to episode 118 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. So last time around, I spent some time in the 90s with music, and I'll be staying in the decade, but this time I'm going to be looking at, well, I don't know how to classify this, to be honest. I originally set out to read and discuss Douglas Copeland's 1991 novel, Generation X, in celebration of its 30th anniversary. But after reading the novel, I found myself falling down an internet rabbit hole, as these things go, and I decided to really look at what Generation X is, or was, in 1991, because it was a term that rose to prominence in the early part of the decade and gets its name from Copeland's novel. The image, I guess we could say, would be of a flannel-wearing, disaffected slacker whose general attitude was more or less apathy, or, to be more accurate, perceived apathy. And look, we all know that the image I just described is wholly inaccurate and now only exists mainly as nostalgia cosplay, But back then, it was part of the dominant narrative, and so I wanted to explore how it came about, what the contemporary views of it were, how it evolved, and where we are now. It's not going to be a comprehensive or definitive look at Generation X, mind you. Despite this episode's length, you can't possibly do that in a single podcast episode. What I hope I can do, though, is take you through a solid overview of the adolescence and 20-somethings of the early 1990s, and then look at how far we've all come since those days. Along the way, I'll be looking at Copeland's novel, as well as some other works that help illustrate or helped even define, at least in the eyes of the media, Generation X. And I'll be starting in 1990, about a year before the generation was given this name. Part one, 20-somethings. Before I even delved into this, I found myself wondering where the idea of giving a name to a generation even began. I unfortunately don't have any sociological experience or credentials to tell you where that idea came from, when it started, or what was the first generation to get a nickname. The first one that I know of, chronologically at least, is the Lost Generation. This is a name that refers to the generation that was born in the very late 1800s and came of age during World War I and its aftermath. The label was invented by Gertrude Stein and popularized by Ernest Hemingway. One of the generations that immediately followed it was what Tom Brokaw would later name the Greatest Generation. And they would be followed by two generations that are germane to this episode the Silent Generation, which was born mainly between the mid 1920s and mid 1940s, and the Baby Boomers which is the generation that was born and grew up in post-World War II. They're associated with the tumult of the 1960s, especially the war in Vietnam and the protest movement against it, as well as the 1960s counterculture movement. Both the latter part of the silent generation and the first part of the baby boomers are the parents of Generation X, with the subsequent generations of millennials and Gen Z being the children of boomers and Gen Xers. And as the 1960s turned into the 70s and 80s, they inherited the legacy of the suburb that the greatest generation cultivated, but they also divorced at a much higher rate. Of course, not everyone's parents got divorced in the 70s and 80s. In fact, my parents just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. But many did. But one change in family dynamics that was more across the board during those decades was that of the two-income household. It's a positive shift in our society and continues to be, even though we certainly need more gender parity when it comes to salary, management roles, leave policies, and a host of other aspects of the workplace. Still, as slow as progress for women has been in our society, there have been enough significant moments of progress since the 1950s that by the time the early 90s rolled around, the effects on the children of the 70s and 80s, both positive and negative, were beginning to be seen. The label Generation X would not be applied to these children, whose birth dates fell roughly between 1965 and 1980, until about 1991 or 1992. But the hand wringing over them has its origins in the July 16, 1990 cover story of Time magazine. Featuring a group of people looking, well, disaffected and at everywhere but the camera, the cover has a headline of 20 something in all lowercase letters. I am very sure that someone on the staff thought that was brilliant. In fact, I can picture the pitch meeting now. It's like the show 30-something, but they're in their 20s. And that's even funnier if you read it in like a Ralph Wiggum voice. The copy near the bottom of the cover says, Laid back, late blooming, or just lost? Overshadowed by the baby boomers, America's next generation has a hard act to follow. The article, written by David M. Gross and Safrina Scott, It's a profile of a generation whose older half was now making up the majority of the entry-level workforce, and whose younger half was on the cusp of adolescence. The older half of the generation, which is the focus of the article, had grown up with what appeared to be less of a sense of identity or drive than the boomers, who dominated so much of the cultural landscape at the time. In fact, The Boomers have become a generation that embodies the whole philosophy of, well, I got mine, so fuck you, and continues to try to have a grip on our culture. And when they lose a modicum of that control, which they're so desperate to maintain, they really can't handle it. They've been incredibly slow to retire, and some even won't still. And while I don't expect a generation with such an entitlement complex as huge as theirs to be gladly stepping aside for anything... I know I didn't expect the scorched-earth bullshit they seem to be pulling at the moment. And you'd think that would have nothing to do with a Time magazine article from 1990, but the baby boomers' attitude and aesthetic were something that the 20-somethings of the article were outright rejecting at the time. The authors list a number of things that Xers rejected and then say, What they hold dear are family life, local activism, national parks, penny loafers, and mountain bikes. They possess only a hazy sense of their own identity, but a monumental preoccupation with all of the problems the preceding generation will leave them to fix. And those problems, to be honest, were many in 1990. After a boom throughout much of the mid-80s, the effects of the 1987 market crash were being felt throughout the economy, and we were sliding toward a recession that would dominate the 1992 presidential race. Homelessness and racial strife were prominent topics in the headlines. The strain that our society put on the environment was becoming increasingly evident, and the AIDS crisis had destroyed an entire generation of men and women, especially in the gay community. So what these kids did was instead of suiting up and taking it all head on, crusading to make a difference or be the next great generation of producers, ah, they said fuck it and moved back home. At least that was the perception. Dig a little deeper into the article, beyond the headline, beyond the subhead, beyond the kind of salacious or sensational things that'll hook you in. And you have a sense that this generation was really aware of what was going on, and they actually really did care, despite perception to the contrary. We're not trying to change things, we're trying to fix things, 21-year-old Ann McCord told Time. And later, Martha Farnsworth, rich national editor of American Demographics magazine, noted how they are a tough-to-define generation and one that in many ways sees itself shirking categories and other definitions put upon them. In fact, a lot of what they were being derided for was due to the economics of the time. They weren't interested in climbing a 30-year ladder with one company because those jobs were going away, especially blue-collar jobs that didn't require a college education that throughout the post-war boom could support a middle-class family. They boomeranged back home because what jobs were available did not compete with the rising cost of living. They were putting off marriage and children because they'd seen their own parents' relationships disintegrate. They cared about the issues, but there were so many that they chose a more localized approach to activism instead of finding themselves able to rally around one single all-encompassing issue in a very public manner. All of these led the established adults to label Generation X a bunch of whiners stuck in a state of suspended adolescence. But really what this was, as many who were interviewed for the article could testify to, was an effort, no matter how unseen to the adult eye it was, for Generation X to make something for themselves. They were rejecting the luxury brands that were put on pedestals in the 80s with more affordable brands that had a sense of style, hence the rise of brands like The Gap. They actually want families, according to the article, but, w- but they want them when they're ready, and they say they will show more commitment, or as 20-year-old Mara Brock says, My generation will be the family generation. I don't want my kids to go through what my parents put me through. And this resentment toward the older generation is echoed by a number of others interviewed. When it comes to activism, they saw their parents or older siblings stand up for what they believe in and then sell out those beliefs through the 70s and 80s. Sean McNally, 20, says, a lot of us are afraid to take an intense stand and then leave it all behind like our parents did. We have to protect ourselves from burning out, from losing faith. Plus, who was going to lead and who are they going to look up to? Christina Chin, 21, is quoted as saying, the media don't really give young people role models anymore. Now you get role models like Donald Trump and all of the moneymakers. No one with real ideals. When you put it in that context, there is no wonder that the 20-somethings of 1990 seem pessimistic and without promise. But all that depends on perspective. And the article ends on a more optimistic note with 21-year-old Anne Evangelista saying, No one is going to say we are anything but slow and steady, but how else are we going to go? I could walk this slow and steady way, and maybe I'll end up winning the race. I think that's easily the most appropriate note to end this segment on, because it shows the pushback against what a publication like Time was trying to do. While the older part of Generation X had been reaping the benefits of the Reagan boom, the middle part and younger part were coming of age after the bust, and really had yet to define themselves. Time's article, despite some of the more optimistic points about the generation, was still trying to define it for a baby boomer audience before the generation had a chance to figure out what it might even want to be. Because 20-something Gen Xers and teenagers weren't reading Time, unless it was for like a school project or they were trapped in an orthodontist's office or something. Moreover, Time wasn't taking the pulse of youth culture and seeing the pop culture evolution that was starting to bubble up and would explode in the next couple of years. Remember, this is still 1990. The adults in the room simply seemed to be interested in doing what Douglas Copeland would term click maintenance, the need of one generation to see the generation following it as deficient so as to bolster its own collective ego. For example, kids today do nothing. They're so apathetic. We used to go out and protest. All they do is shop and complain. And that's where I'm going next. Part 2. Tales for an Accelerated Slacker Culture There isn't one particular piece of popular culture that comes to mind when I think of "quote defining Generation X. Sure, you could put together a collection of films and television shows that attempted to capture that particular zeitgeist, and I certainly have covered more than my fair share, from the mid-80s burgeoning yuppie wreck that is St. Elmo's Fire, to Cameron Crowe's double shot of late and post-adolescence in Say Anything in Singles, to 1994's Reality Bites to my so-called life, and even clerks. Even the first few seasons of MTV's The Real World is an imperfect snapshot of Generation X, although I will say the evolution of that show does serve as a great microcosm of the evolution of the 90s and the two generations that make up that decade's youth. So I'm not going to apply the word definitive to the two works I'm going to spotlight here, but I will say, that when I first learned about Generation X as a concept, they were mentioned quite a bit. One, because it seemed to give the generation a label. The other gave the generation its name. They are Richard Linklater's 1990 film, Slacker, and Douglas Copeland's 1991 novel, Generation X. It's
1: like... uh... You know, in The Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy meets the Scarecrow and they do that little dance at that crossroads and they think about going all those directions, then they end up going in that one direction. I mean, all those other directions, just because they thought about it, became separate realities. I mean, they just went on from there and lived the rest of their life. One time I had lunch with Tolstoy, another time I was a roadie for Frank Zappa. Mourn for one woman as we grow old for women in general. You, 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 you should, you should never traumatize a woman sexually. I should know. I'm a medical doctor. We've been on Mars since 62, it was May 22nd. That's a very important day for you to remember, pal. They take Scooby-Doo, you know? Scooby-Doo like, looks at you, it's, like, it's like, like they're shaggy and they're Scooby-Doo, and they say, hey, why don't you beat the shit out of this bad guy, and like we'll give you a Scooby snack, and you will go, oh, duh. may live badly but at least i don't have to work to do it the next person who passes us will be dead within a fortnight Hey, what, what the hell? yourself oh yeah you, you know me i've been uh keeping up with my uh, jfk assassination theories you know oh really yeah A video image is much more powerful and useful than an actual event. It's a Madonna pap smear.
0: I think that like most people my age, my first exposure to Richard Linklater was 1993's Dazed and Confused, his American Graffiti-esque 1976 throwback movie full of classic 1970s rock and before they were stars cast members. That movie, interestingly enough, underperformed at the box office, but it got a video rental life that movies like it in the 90s would the same way that like HBO put so many movies into public consciousness throughout the 80s. But he would not have been able to make Dazed and Confused without Slacker, his 1990 film that was one of the first early 90s independent breakthroughs along with Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape. It's also been noted as influential, particularly to Kevin Smith, who when talking about it in John Pearson's book Spike, Mike, Slackers, and Dykes, says that... Going to see Slacker when it appeared in New York in 1991 was the moment he realized that he could be a filmmaker and that without that film, there would be no clerks. But what is Slacker, aside from a movie that helped give Gen X that label? Well, it's a film that Linklater more or less self-financed in film. And when he was looking to get someone to distribute it, actually tied the image of the listless 20-something to it by sending a VHS copy to Pearson along with a copy of the Time magazine article I mentioned at the top of this episode. Pearson accepted it and he shopped it around to festivals, which took quite a while as it was rejected by some of the bigger ones at first. It had a slow growth and was one of those word-of-mouth pictures that comes around every once in a while before it finally got the wider release that both Pearson and Linklater wanted in 1991. And while it established his reputation as a filmmaker, Slacker didn't wind up having the post-release video life that Dazed and Confused and his other mid-1990s feature Before Sunrise would. Instead, because Orion Classics, who distributed Slacker, only put out a few thousand copies on video, the film became one of those movies that so many people talked about or knew about, but actually probably hadn't seen. Obviously, I watched it for this episode, but it wasn't the first time I've ever seen it. My first time was back in college, in my senior year, when I took an Introduction to Film Studies elective. Most of our homework consisted of watching films in the library screening room where they had a projection TV or in a library basement viewing room where you'd sit in a study cubby and watch a movie on what had to be like a 16-inch television screen. Although I was able to straight up rent or already own a few of the movies that we were assigned, such as 2001 A Space Odyssey, so I didn't have to sit through all of them like that. My roommate appreciated 2001, by the way. He uh, got baked out of his mind and watched the Stargate scene with me. Thanks for being a cliche, Kevin. Anyway, Amanda and I actually found Slacker at her local video store, Family Video in Stafford, Virginia, which uh, no longer exists. We found that one weekend when we were meeting at her parents' house, and since I had to watch it for class, and she and I were both huge, dazed, and confused fans, we rented it. We didn't know what to make of it. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. In fact, I think I just thought it didn't seem like anything, really. Thankfully, on my rewatch of it for this episode, I got more out of it. It's hard to sum up Slacker in terms of a plot, because there really isn't one. It begins with a guy who is actually played by Richard Linklater himself, which according to the IMDb trivia page for the film wasn't originally intended begin with him arriving in Austin by bus, getting a cab, and rambling for a very long time at his cabbie about how every decision one makes in life creates the reality that exists afterwards, and therefore any alternative decisions result in diverging realities. The cabbie just straight faced through the entire thing, and he just keeps driving. And while it's a long-winded and tedious little ramble, my love of multiverses and things like comic books or alternate history narratives got me sucked into the moment. Plus, it's also kind of the thesis for this film as the story is just roughly 24 hours in Austin and each character is someone the camera encounters and then follows for a while. We go from Linklater's bus passenger to a guy who just hit his mother with her car to a guy walking down the street getting pestered by another guy who's wearing a 1989 Batman t-shirt and rambling about conspiracies and how we've actually been on the moon with the Soviets since 1970 and how we're always being watched to people and and. And watched and stuff. And then we go to these people who rent out, like they all rent rooms in this huge house. And then we see two friends running into each other on the street, one of whom has just come out of treatment. And she's talking about it until they're interrupted by another person who tries to sell them what she claims is Madonna's pap smear to a guy who gets into this weird diner and it just keeps going. And some of these characters are quite straightforward and ordinary, others are incredibly weird, like the old guy who claims to be an anarchist who participated in the Spanish Civil War and was disappointed to have been across town with his wife when Charles Whitman killed the people from the University of Texas Bell Tower. A number of these people have monologues that are showcased or shown in passing and are the type of pretentious pseudo-intellectual coffeehouse philosophers that became some of the more loathsome members of Generation X. Some are just the type of people you'd meet in a bar or club or something, and we get the sense that we're seeing a moment in their lives. There are some silly moments, like the sequence where three kids, after trying to peek on their neighbors who are about to have sex, steal Diet Coke's from a soda machine and then try to resell them, followed by three guys who hold a weird exorcism of women who wrong them by throwing a tent and a typewriter, which are symbols of those women, off a bridge into the river. And the film ends with a reference to Robert Altman's classic film, Nashville, with a guy driving around with a PA strapped to his car, talking about anarchy, followed by a group who's driving by, and they've got some Super 8 cameras, and that footage which is very car of idiots and almost seems like footage that would be used in like a music video you'd seen on 120 minutes back in the day. Well, that footage ends the movie and it ends with someone throwing one of the cameras off a cliff and the point of view of that camera as it flips end over end. Like I said, it's not so much a story as it is an anti-story. And I guess it could come off as artsy and pretentious, but whereas I didn't know what to make of it in 1998 or 1999 when I first watched it, I actually really liked it this time around. Maybe my being older or not having the obligations of the film plus five books to read for other classes gave me the opportunity to sit and appreciate it more. Maybe I understood it better? I don't know. But what I do know is is that as we went through the movie and encountered each one of these people, I found myself wondering what each of their stories were beyond the snapshot we were seeing. In my AP literature class, I teach a story by Ernest Hemingway called Hills Like White Elephants. If you're unfamiliar with this story, it takes place over a short period of time, 10, 20 minutes, in a train station in Spain and is a conversation among people who are discussing something very serious, even if the topic is not stated. I encourage you to read it, so I'll stop there with the description, but what I especially love about it is the way that Hemingway's style of writing makes the story feel as if we're eavesdropping in on those two. We don't know anything about them beyond their dialogue, and we don't know what is going to happen after that, but we're pulled in because Hemingway makes it interesting and because it's like he knows we have voyeuristic tendencies. And by the way, That's a lot coming from me. Hemingway is near the bottom of the list of authors for me, so praising this one of his stories is a lot. And I bring up Hills Like White Elephants to say that Linklater is very much doing the same thing. Since he shot this on an extremely low budget, Slacker takes place on the actual streets of Austin, and it's not in a set with weird lighting that's shot to affect some mood and five camera filters put in place and lens flare and... I don't know. Let's go down the list of the Zack Snyder, J.J. Abrams type of Michael Bay type of filmmaker, you know? So this is not only a lived-in world, it's our world. It's 30 years between now and then makes Slacker a time capsule, actually, even if that probably wasn't Linklater's intent. So I watched these encounters with these people, and I wondered where some of them were coming from or where they went after they left the camera. For instance, in a part of the film where we see a bunch of people who rent rooms in a huge house, they're in the room of a roommate who has left. He's packed up everything and he left, and he left behind a bunch of cryptic postcards. They read them off and wonder what happened, but that's all we get because we then follow one of the guys out of the room to the street where he runs to the old friend and they get interrupted by a Madonna pap smear girl. That moment in the room with the postcards could be the inciting incident to an entire other plot. And I simultaneously wanted to go back to that to see what happened, as well as let my imagination fill in the blanks while I watched the next part. This happens several times over, as the film is too lazy to stick around and find out. Plus, unlike other independent movies where the overly educated yet underemployed are seen as some sort of admirable new beat generation or something, Linklater doesn't try to make them seem any better or worse than the more ordinary people in the movie. Some of them come off as interesting, worth listening to, others are just flat-out obnoxious. One of them even gets called out as one of the guys who participates in that throwing objects into the river ceremony, then goes and meets up with his girlfriend, and after she gives a homeless guy a quarter and a Diet Coke, he chides her about her efforts to help suffering people and starts mansplaining to her about how the world works or some shit. The beauty is that she's not here for any of it, and she tells him off. She calls him out on his pretentious bullshit, basically saying that he's parroting all this crap he hears without actually understanding what he's saying, and then says, everyone thinks you're an asshole. I feel sorry for you. While it does get tedious at times, I see a genuine effort to make a film in Slacker despite its name. Link later, I don't think, is making a statement, and instead had this film wind up being a statement by those who were trying to make it one or perhaps he was trying not to make a statement but give instead give us a portrait of what he was seeing and what was being portrayed in the media with regard to his age group and the same can be said for the other person who had a voice of a generation label placed upon him douglas copeland generation x or its full name generation x tales for an accelerated culture was written by Douglas Copeland and first published by St. Martin's Press on March 15, 1991. It's Copeland's debut novel, as he had been working as a magazine writer in Vancouver since 1987, and had actually been given an advance by a Canadian publisher to write a book that would be a handbook about the generation that had grown up after the baby boomers, based on an article he wrote about the generation for Vancouver magazine. He went to live in the Mojave Desert for a year, and the result was not a handbook, but this novel. Over the years, he's given various reasons behind the inspiration for the title of the novel, but one quote that stands out on his Wikipedia page is from a 1991 Boston Globe interview. I just want to show society what people born after 1960 think about things. We're sick of stupid labels. We're sick of being marginalized in lousy jobs, and we're sick of hearing about ourselves. The book eventually became a bestseller, although the original publishing company did reject it because Copeland didn't deliver what they had asked. St. Martin's accepted it and it slowly gained traction, eventually becoming a seminal work of the early 90s. So if you're going to summarize the book, though, you actually have to do it in two parts. First, you focus on the plot and the characters, and then you talk about what Copeland put in the book's margins, which are definitions of various made-up terms and slang words, pop art drawings, and bumper sticker slogans. Much like Slacker, Generation X doesn't follow a traditional plot structure and is instead a character-driven set of vignettes that have clever chapter titles like I Am Not a Target Market, New Zealand Gets Nuked Too, Quit Recycling the Past, and Define Normal. Our main focus is on three friends, Andy, Dag, and Claire, who are adrift 20-somethings living in the Palm Springs area. Part one of the novel takes place over the course of an afternoon. They have a picnic and spend time telling stories to one another, and Andy narrates each character's backstory and the origin of their friendship. It's a Canterbury Tales from 1991, with Andy giving us the general prologue while all three tell their stories. And Andy winds up being the most likable of the three, as Dag and Claire are really self-absorbed and come off as the overtly ironic types, the image-obsessed who would always deny that they are image-obsessed. In fact, they're both kind of assholes, and even Andy is to a degree. But while I would normally sour on a book like this, I found myself won over by both Andy's narration and a reminder that everyone's kind of an asshole in their 20s. Besides, things do pick up in part two with the events that happened in the days following that picnic. Dag vanishes and then calls from Nevada with some story about some guy who tours nuclear testing sites. He returns with souvenirs for his friends, one of which is a chunk of Trinitrite, which is glass left in the Nevada desert after the test of the Trinity nuclear bomb test in 1945. Claire flips out and drops it on the floor of her apartment, causing it to shatter, and then moves in with Andy because she believes her apartment is now contaminated and radioactive. Soon after, she's visited by Tobias, a friend she has a thing for, and they begin to repeat the storytelling of part one, but this time joined by Tobias and Claire's friend Elvisa. But the conversation goes much deeper as Elvisa pushes them to be more honest and actually express their feelings about their lives and the directions they're headed instead of masking them behind allegory. Tobias heads back to New York City and the group makes their respective plans for Christmas. Andy heads to his parents' house in Portland. Claire, thinking she can get somewhere with Tobias, heads to New York. Dag stays in Palm Springs and, before the holidays, manages to set fire to an expensive car on accident, but he flees the scene and he avoids arrest. Andy's portrait of his family for the reader before we meet them is that they don't get along and you can't get him, his parents, or all of his siblings together without an argument breaking out. But he's not surrounded by all of them at Christmas, and it winds up being a nice and overall revelatory visit for him. He contemplates his own role in this feeling of adriftness that he's got, and he realizes that his parents aren't totally to blame for the way he is, and feels that they're actually pretty decent people. Claire has a similar revelation after discovering that Tobias is in a relationship with Elvisa. Dag, however, lies to the police about setting fire to that car, so he does not wind up having the level of character development that the other two do. The novel closes on New Year's Day, where Andy discovers that Dag and Claire have left Palm Springs and they've moved to Mexico to open a hotel. They want him to join them. He then packs his things and heads there, and on the way, he stops on the side of the highway to stand alongside a van of teenagers with special needs and watch a very beautiful white bird land in a black, charred field. The kids all squeal with delight and hug him as he reflects on the authenticity of that moment. You know, it's my third time reading the book. Um, I read it you know, years ago and, and read it a second time a little bit after that. And I actually expected not to like it, especially after I read the first part. And like I said, came to the conclusion that these characters were kind of assholes. But Andy, as the narrator, grew on me. And I was actually really invested in his part of the story because I could see through his act and found an authentic person who had become so ensconced in the artifice and irony that was part of their little world that he lost sense of what that word, authenticity, meant. Palm Springs serves as a great setting as well, especially since the area of Palm Springs they live in is this kind of run-down part, and they wind up working around wealthy older people who are the embodiment of faded glory and have this stale Hollywood smell about them. So our 20-somethings are feeling washed up while also living in a state of suspended animation surrounded by older people who are washed up and living a state in a state of suspended importance. None of them have anything horribly dramatic happen to them. Even that car fire that Dag starts is completely accidental and more funny than anything. But when they see the ordinary for what it is or the veneer of self-delusion or detachment falls away, they begin to connect with that lost authenticity. Leaving the novel, I firmly believe that Andy and Claire will be okay, and they'll probably leave Dag, the perpetual man-child, behind as he continues to avoid any responsibility. In fact, if that hotel in Mexico succeeds at all, it will be because of Andy and Claire. I don't think it will, and I don't think Copeland does either, but I do think that he's given two of them purpose, and that's the most important part. Now, I mentioned that in summarizing the novel, I'd have to also summarize what Copeland puts into the margins, because this is what the book is probably most famous for. Copeland drops into the occasional Roy Lichtenstein-esque painting, as well as a number of bumper sticker-type slogans, such as, Use Jets While You Still Can, The Love of Meat Prevents Any Real Change, Stop History, Economy of Scale Is Ruining Choice, Reinvent the Middle Class, and Nostalgia Is a Weapon. It's the type of meme-like stuff that would seem in your face, fight the power cool to maybe teenagers, but to this group would be used ironically, even if there's a paradox considering how true the statements actually can be. Anyway, it's the terms and their definitions that are the highlight of the book's margins. A more biting version of Sniglets, they provide elements of that handbook Copeland had originally been commissioned to write while also giving us social criticism. The most famous of the terms is McJobs, a low-pay, low-prestige, low-dignity, low-benefit, no-future job in the service sector, frequently considered a satisfying career choice by people who have never held one. This word entered the cultural lexicon as a result of this novel, and if you want proof, look at just about any article published about Generation X or 20 something since 1991. In fact, I did a Google search for Generation and McJobs, and. Even after eliminating the words novel, book, and Copeland, I still got 1,630 results. Here's a few others. Historical underdosing to live in a period of time when nothing seems to happen. Major symptoms include addiction to newspapers, magazines, and TV news broadcasts. Historical overdosing to live in a time when too much happens. Major symptoms include addiction to newspapers, magazines, and TV news broadcasts. Decade blending. In clothing, the indiscriminate combination of two or more items from various decades to create a personal mood. Sheila equals Mary Quant earrings, the 1960s, plus cork wedgie platform shoes, the 1970s, plus black leather jacket, 50s and 80s. Mid-20s breakdown. A period of mental collapse occurring in one's 20s, often caused by an inability to function outside of school or structured environments, coupled with a realization of one's essential aloneness in the world often marks induction into the ritual of pharmaceutical usage. And a quick note on that one, um, in the mid-2000s, this actually would end up getting the name quarter-life crisis, if you remember that term. Safety netism. The belief that there will always be a financial and emotional safety net to buffer life's hurts, usually parents. Bambification- The Mental Conversion of Flesh and Blood Living Creatures into Cartoon Characters Possessing Bourgeois Judeo-Christian Attitudes and Morals The Emperor's New Mall The popular notion that shopping malls exist on the insides only and have no exterior. The suspension of visual belief engendered by this notion allows shoppers to present that the large cement blocks thrust into their environment do not in fact exist. Poor Buoyancy the realization that one was a better person when one had less money. Musical hair-splitting. The act of classifying music and musicians into pathologically picky categories. The Vienna Franks are a good example of urban white acid folk revivalism crossed with ska. Yuppie wannabes. An ex-generation subgroup that believes the myth of a yuppie lifestyle being both satisfying and viable tend to be highly in debt, involved in some form of substance abuse, and show a willingness to talk about Armageddon after three drinks. Bradyism. A multi-sibling sensibility derived from having grown up in large families. A rarity in those born after approximately 1965, symptoms of Bradyism include a facility for mind games, emotional withdrawal in situations of overcrowding, and a deeply felt need for well-defined personal space. Fame-induced apathy, the attitude that no activity is worth pursuing unless one can become very famous pursuing it. Fame-induced apathy mimics laziness, but its roots are much deeper. And terminal wanderlust, a condition common to people of transient middle-class upbringings. Unable to feel rooted in any one environment, they move continually in the hopes of finding an idealized sense of community in the next location. and There are plenty more than just those several that I just read. Coming at the beginning of the decade after the Time article, both Slacker and Generation X wound up being the foundational texts for the generation. And John Pearson notes this in the closing of his chapter on Slacker, saying, Rick Linklater and his Generation X Siamese twin Doug Clopeland may never fully escape from being co-spokespersons. And to be fair, by my reading, neither seemed to be very comfortable with the idea. Linklater, as Pearson describes him, was the epitome of a film student who wanted to make art, even if he did a few mainstream features. His influences are way more cerebral, and you see that in a number of his films, which aren't grounded in pop culture references or homages to other filmmakers, say like Quentin Tarantino, or don't dip as much into low comedy like Kevin Smith. And I fucking love the first four Kevin Smith movies, but that's not a jab at the guy, just an observation that he has not met a fart joke he doesn't like. But does Generation X have a spokesperson? I mean, Copeland probably suffered from having the idea thrust upon him more than Linklater, and by the mid-1990s, he was quoted in a number of articles having rejected the label and lamenting that it was co-opted for marketing to a generation that was resistant to such ploys. And when I think of it, generations seem to be full of reluctant idols or spokespeople. Maybe it's the nature of 20-somethings overall, but it seemed like every time you turned around, there was some story or quote about a musician, actor, or athlete saying he didn't want to be considered a role model or wasn't the voice of a generation. I'm inclined to think that if anyone really ever does want to be the voice of a generation or they declare themselves to be the voice of a generation, are not really the people you want in the role of the voice of a generation because they're probably raging narcissists. Plus, the idea that this generation, or really any generation for that matter, has a singular identity is kind of ridiculous. After all, you're talking about a group of people born over a 30-year period and living all over the country, even the world. But the media insists on packaging, And the moment they do, said label winds up sticking. Hence, Generation X. For Generation X, it would take at least a few years for that label to wear off. At least a little. Although I imagine it's not worn off completely. That's what
1: I'll talk about after this break. This is my world and I am A world leader pretend This is my life this is my time. I have been given the freedom to do as I see fit. It's high time I raised the walls that I've constructed. It's amazing what devices you can sympathize. This is my mistake.
0: Affairs, rage, revenge, testosterone poisoning, gunshots, sculpture, feminine hygiene products, naked car crashes. You know what we haven't had in a long time? And liver. Terry Moore's Strangers in Paradise, the audio adaptation coming to your ear holes in late 2020 on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network.
1: Liver is my life.
0: Part 3. Exorcism This is kind of the part where i fit into this if you asked me anything about generation x in 1991 i wouldn't have been able to tell you anything after all i was 14 so i wasn't plugged into any sort of generational examination or anything otherwise sociological i think that in 1991 if i thought beyond my sheltered suburban bubble it was about the huge world events like desert storm or the clarence thomas hearings despite there being six years until i hit 20 that was still an incredibly long way away. My first real encounter with the term and Generation X's reputation was probably, well, maybe I was aware of it through seeing Singles or Reality Bites, but I also remember a June 4th, 1994 Newsweek article that I came across while in a doctor's office waiting room. See? The tone of the piece, entitled Generalizations X, is definitely more positive and pushes back on the generalizations that were being made, throwing statistics at the reader along with testimonials from various, quote, "representatives of the 20something set. I was so struck by it that I used it as the basis of a school newspaper editorial I wrote in October 1984. You can read that piece on the blog in an entry I posted back in 2014, and I'll link to it in the show notes. Maybe I was a little too affected by the article. But it looks like 17-year-old me was clearly skeptical of the whole slacker stereotype, saying there isn't just one way to describe a generation. But I admit that even though I didn't fall for the whole slacker misanthrope stereotype, the idea that you could examine a generation like this fascinated me. In hindsight, I should have explored this further at the time, and maybe even majored in sociology instead of creative writing and political science. But I did get to indulge or explore it here and there in college, and as I attended the occasional lecture or had discussions about the occasional novel or film, like Slacker, in class and with friends. I remember one panel I attended that was about shattering the Generation X stereotype, and the panelists were all people in their 20s who were doing things like running for public office and were part of activist organizations that supported various causes, such as the environment. It was, at least in Baltimore, a think-globally, act-locally approach, which is what was mentioned in the Time article. But that wasn't a pivotal moment for me, if I'm being honest. There were girls and beer and beer and more beer, which is what college is going to do. You know, I know that in some cases, time spent on the campus of a college or university can lead to radical thought and maybe even action, but... I was at a Jesuit liberal arts college in the mid-Atlantic that for many of my peers was just four more years of the private Catholic high school they'd just graduated from. Awareness? I guess if you're thinking of different ways to uh, obliterate yourself on a Saturday night. But that was a couple of decades ago, and here I am now, looking at my generation with a historical and critical lens, and in order to do so, I decided I needed to go deeper than a couple of cursory yet influential articles in Time and Newsweek. So I dug back into more thorough book-length works of the time. Because while hindsight is a great perspective, the way generation was analyzed back in the 1990s is also worthwhile to look at because of the fact that it's an artifact. And what this led me to, therefore, is a book that I'd been interested in reading for years, but never actually bought. And this is the book 13th Gen, Abort, Retry, Fail by Neil Howe and William Strauss. They are sociologists who developed the Strauss-Howe generational theory. And this is a theory about how generations develop throughout history, especially in American history and society. In short, and this is cribbed from the summary on the Wikipedia page, Historical events are associated with recurring generational archetypes, which helps change the socio-political and economic mood. It's part of a larger cycle they call a saculum, a period of a human lifetime, which is roughly like 80 to 100 years, and one that corresponds to societal, institutional, and political crises and upheavals. Again, I'm not doing that description any sort of justice, and it's something that's worth a deeper dive for my own learning and probably yours as well. Thirteenth Gen was published in 1993, and it was a book that I would constantly come across whenever I found myself killing time in a bookstore like Borders, Barnes and Noble, B. Dalton, or Walden Books. You know, as you did. It is laid out like a textbook, pretty much. It's got main text, sidebar quotes, graphs, cartoons, and and all these kind of testimonials from people of the generation. So it can be a bit laborious to read, even though it's easy. Uh, to flip through. It's actually kind of fun to flip through it, to be honest with you. And it does prove really fascinating. Plus, with the 1993 publication date, the popular culture that became most associated with Generation X had already taken hold and it had gone mainstream. So there were more out there for the two of them to look at than what you saw in the Time magazine article. They start out by admitting that they are two boomer sociologists who are looking at what they call 13 eschewing the Generation X label and naming them after the number of their generation in American history. The fact that they are the 13th generation of Americans is not lost on these two, of course, and they fully acknowledge the roles and presence of other generations in the lives of 13ers. In fact, they refer to the generation's younger siblings as millennials. And I think that's the earliest I'd ever seen the u- word used. The book starts off with the same narrative that so many of these articles did, by repeating all of the doom and gloom statistics of a generation that was feeling like it had the rug pulled out from under them. But then someone named Crasher bursts in, and I should explain this because it was actually my favorite element of the entire book. So what they did was they published their book on an internet message board, like Usenet or something. And what they got was Ian Williams, a then 20-something writer criticizing what they were saying. Now, for all I know, it's just their way of framing this because Williams does get a co-writer credit. But the concept, while a bit gimmicky, not only works, but shows that Howe and Strauss were, at least on some level, aware that the internet was going to have an effect on our generation. And maybe our generation was going to have an effect on us, on it. And also to their credit, Howe and Strauss are thorough in their look at the generation. Lazier Gen X pieces might use some talking point about how diverse we are, But the image they often default to is that of a white male or female, and they are most likely straight, even if their sexual orientation is not on the record. 13th Gen looks at race and sexuality in a way that is more inclusive, but also critical, especially when it comes to the way they approach their own views in comparison with prior generations' views. One of the most notable points I picked up on was how Gen Xers were laid with a pretty heavy burden of picking up where their parents left off in regard to race relations and civil rights. After all, the silent generation and the baby boomers were the generations of the 50s and the 60s, the ones who protested out in the open and they faced down oppression. Generation X's perceived lack of organized protest in the early 1990s was looked down upon. But even the Time Magazine 20 something article saw through that. As for every boomer who stood up and protested, there were those who stayed home and watched TV. Not only that, as Ian Williams comments, Boomer culture dominated the landscape in the late 80s and early 90s, and as they flexed about their authenticity and achievement, they also showed off how vapid they were, flooding society with artifice and gloss. Gen X, Millennials, and Gen Z's focus on fame and the famous to the varying degrees is the fault of the narcissistic generation that came before them, and that quite frankly continues to overstay its welcome. Not only that, but boomer criticism of extra apathy, at least in that mainstream narrative, contributed to the very homogenized white Ford stereotype that I mentioned. The messages sent by rap artists and filmmakers like Spike Lee and John Singleton in the late 80s and early 1990s were not those of slacker apathy. Many of them were the exact sentiments and calls to action that the older generation was accusing the younger of not having. However, the 6 o'clock news and white suburban parents treated them with the same racist gloves that had been used for decades, so instead of focusing on that message, they focused on the anger. Instead of having a conversation about the issues that they were bringing up, they were instead presented to white kids as dangerous. Why? I don't know. Okay, I know, but it was so casually accepted and came with various levels of subtlety that I didn't notice for years. Heck, it even bled over into discussions about national events like the LA riots, right? So when they came up in class, we never discussed the cause of the riots beyond the Rodney King tape and the and the jury verdict. But we did see the Reginald Denny beating on a loop, and we did wonder aloud why they were, quote, destroying their own neighborhoods. I'm sure some of that seems familiar, by the way, because many of us have learned nothing in... 30 years, and I'm not going to get all performative and say that I have. But in educating myself about the history of race in our country and culture, I kind of want to go back in time and slap me for either being quiet when my classmates or teachers said stuff that was ignorant at best or outright racist at worst, and kind of stand up for something that was a little more nuanced of an argument. Anyway, back to the book. While I cringe at How and Strauss's phrase, New Jack, as a a reference to New Jack City, to describe the, please pardon the phrase, inner city youth segment of the generation, which is, again, how they were often framed in the media. Uh, When the two authors delve into the Black experience, they take an honest look at their portrayals in boomer-led media, just like the ones I described. And while they do not use the phrase specifically, they also describe the school-to-prison pipeline and the damage that is doing. They also talk about the rather conservative views of criminal justice that many white members of Generation X had, which they correlate to the number of vigilante movies that were released in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I know that correlation is not causation, and you know they do too, but it does make sense, especially when you consider how much PR the police have gotten out through the decades through cop shows. Granted, Howe and Strauss get a fair amount, well, Not wrong, per se, but they certainly don't go far enough with their examination. But instead of sitting here and leveling criticism, I'm making mental notes to go out and look up works by Black academics and scholars on Generation X, as well as those who are in the LGBTQ community. And that's another thing that Generation, uh, that 13th Gen helps put to lie with regard to the boomer-driven view that they are an apathetic generation. If you know anything about the 80s and the 90s, they were devastating decades for the uh, for the LGBTQ community. Also saw significant growth though, uh, in the gay rights movement, but it was out of the crisis facing them, the biggest of which was AIDS. While members of the baby boom generation did start the movement in the late 1960s, they were joined by the younger generation in these decades through organizations like ACT UP, This reflects the more progressive nature of Generation X, and that that can also be seen in what was often labeled the culture wars. Howe and Strauss paint a picture of a generation determined not to repeat its parents' mistakes, not prone to boomers' grandstanding about everything, and one that is pragmatic about their social and sex lives, even if that means eschewing tradition. Xers, statistically, when polled in 1993, were more accepting of homosexuality, even if they had a little too much of a keep-it-private attitude about it. They were more pro-choice, and they were more prone to marry and have children later in life. In fact, it's parenting where Generation X sees one of its biggest challenges. Howe and Strauss don't get into extras parenting styles too much because at that point it was only the very oldest members of the generation that were married and with children, and most were in college or high school or had just entered the workforce. But they do know that one determination that this generation has is to not repeat their parents' mistakes. Older generations, they note, are already fawning over a new and no longer lost millennial generation of youngsters more on that later. Yet, where boomer educators and media products fancy themselves heading a crusade for children, unfurling new banners of innocence, values, training, and virtue, 13ers see themselves working at a more personal level. Increasingly, they're the parents who actually warm the milk bottle, buy the toys, mount the safety seats, and read the nursery rhymes. As long as they can coax a smile, they won't worry that they never learned much about careful nurture when they were on the receiving end of that parent child relationship. They'll make up for it by sheer force of will. Unlike their silent parents, they're in no mood to tolerate family failure. And here is where my own experience actually can once again come in, because I am a parent. Late Gen Xer, I'm a parent and a parent of a Zoomer kid. So while my family structure during my childhood was very stable, I will say that this idea that, that we don't follow into the when you grow up, your heart dies trap is very real and where we probably fell the most for consumerist marketing ploys. When you want to undo the mistakes your parents made and there is an entire industry to help you along the way, it's easy to one day suddenly wake up surrounded by a few hundred dollars worth of stuff from Babies R Us and not realize how you got there. We spend a lot of our kids' infancy and toddler years freaking out about whether or not we're doing any of these things right. We hover more. And when we don't, we worry that we're being neglectful, even though the ability to be alone and work alone was one of the most useful skills we picked up in the latchkey years. Yeah, so we overcorrected a bit. And uh, this is something that's detailed in one of the few good portions of Tiffany Dark's book, Now We Are 40, Whatever Happened to Generation X. Dark is an English writer and editor who has had a career working at various lifestyle publications, so she's done some chronicling of Gen X. And while I found some of her stories of British Gen X culture of the 90s and how it both converged and diverged with what was going on with us in the States, pretty interesting. Much of the book comes off like a cool kid in the cafeteria perspective with tons of name dropping and bragging about the exploits of herself and her friends when they were in their 20s. She does, however, paint a pretty uh, accurate portrait of the bullshit that society puts mothers through, and the products that are constantly bandied about to take advantage of the immense guilt trip that they're made to feel over not breastfeeding, choosing to work, where and how their kids are educated, screen time, leaving them alone for five minutes so they can go to the bathroom. Yep. (laughs) But unfortunately, Those are kind of the diamonds in the rough of a book that's kind of vapid. It's kind of disappointing. And I was really hoping that there'd be some interesting perspectives along the lines of what I was seeing in like Gia Tolentino's Trick Mirror or uh, Lindy West's Shrill. But how hard you partied in Ibiza in the late 90s? I have friends who were ravers back then. I can hit up their Facebook for where they do throwback Thursdays and reminisce about going to clubs or something. I don't need a book about that. Again, maybe it's my fault for looking for a simple one-stop read when more diverse evidence of how Generation X handled maturity and even how they handled looking back on their youth, you know, is is kind of in plain sight. It's all over the place. I mean, the internet, the internet is littered with ancient blogs that are Xers complaining about the culture of the time. The articles all over the place, and and we're still complaining about the encroaching shadow of middle age. Plus, you can look at social media to see how we're doing. Yes, I realize social media is a festering cesspool, but the evolution of the internet is one of Generation X's bigger accomplishments, for better or worse. One thing I did find as I looked for more articles on Xers as the 90s and early aughts wore on was a slight shift in the narrative to say that the generation was one of late bloomers and that perhaps we weren't slackers but were hamstrung by a crappy economy and also were waiting to do things on our terms. Remember that person I quoted earlier from the 20-something article saying about how slow and steady will win the race? Howe and Strauss closed their book with 13 predictions about 13ers, because of course. And many of those predictions are broad, and they try to crystal ball the generation's middle and old age. Some of them make sense for the time, but don't take into account enough of the impact of the echo boomer generation, that is the millennials. And they do get a little too exact with their language. For instance when they say that generation x will become the only generation born this century to suffer a one generation backstep in living standards it's true but we're not the only generation we've certainly seen that happen to the generations who have come after us mainly due to a number of the econ- of economic factors like wealth hoarding and how boomers continue to i've got mine so fuck you our world into oblivion but there are a few other predictions of theirs that really work are on the nose for instance Thirteeners will never grow, outgrow their bad image. Howe and Strauss predict of more dire things regarding crime and prisons, which certainly have come true, especially for non-white populations. And they also say, by the year 2020, Americans in their 50s will be generally regarded as the worst behaved and worst educated than Americans in their 20s, exactly the opposite of today. Now, there are certainly dumb 20-somethings out there. But consider the awareness of a number of today's youth and younger adults versus how many people in their 50s and older that we are trying to pull out of the Sarlacc pit that is QAnon. Maybe intelligence or education isn't the right word to use here, but there's certainly a lack of awareness and more susceptibility when it comes to an embarrassing number of people in my generation. Shit, even people my age, and I'm a younger slice of Generation X here, have fallen for multi-level marketing schemes. At least as far as I can tell by all the former classmates of mine who try to friend me on Facebook just so they can sell me some, I don't know, supplements or some shit. Anyway, Howe and Strauss make predictions about behavior and education and politics, and the political ones wound up coming true in some regard as well. They note, and I'm paraphrasing here, that by 2020, Gen X will not have any plurality in Congress. And while they will produce leaders, it'll be a quick, bright moment before they're swept aside by millennials. This actually is happening. Now, it's partially because the desiccated corpse of boomer politicians that comprise most of our legislative branch won't retire, but also because millennials as a generation are enormous. But Kamala Harris is a Gen Xer, and many of us worked with our younger counterparts to help one of uh, Howe and Strauss's other predictions come true. And that is, verbatim here, before the year 2030, events will call on pockmarked 13ers to make aging boomers get real, and perhaps to stop some righteous old Aquarian from doing something truly catastrophic. They then go on to say, it's not an idle worry. Just think about it. Of all of today's living generations, which one is someday most likely to risk blowing up the world to prove a point? When that nightmare possibility appears, it may compel a grown-up cadre of shouted-at-breakfast clubbers to insist on having the last word after all, and to demand that principle defer to survival. And that, by the way, is an educated guess by two sociologists, not some YouTuber looking at five seconds of a Simpsons episode from 20 seasons ago and talking about eerie predictions about the 2020 election. But when I look at that statement, I think of people like Stacey Abrams. She was born in 1973 and who led a statewide voter registration campaign for the 2020 election, one that she slowly and steadily built over the The last few years, and one that used millennial and Gen Z volunteers and employees for its boots on the ground operation. If you haven't really looked at the whole story of how Georgia went blue in 2020 and then ended up turning over two Senate seats, it is an outstanding story. It's only one example for sure, but as this generation comes of age, we've seen more and more how the image of the apathetic slacker was a lie presented by older generations, and it even undermines boomers' current views of millennials. Part 4. Maybe it was just a phase. On May 23, 2013, the cover of Time magazine had a picture of a young woman taking a selfie against a baby blue background. The cover headline said, "The Me, Me, Me Generation." The copy that read, "Millennials are lazy, entitled narcissists who still live with their parents. Why they'll save us all." Before I even opened the issue, I immediately thought of the 20-somethings article from 1990. I also found the title fitting, considered that millennials are by and large the children of boomers, yeah, with the older Generation X thrown in there too, and the Me Generation is one of the derogatory nicknames for the boomers. Anyway, the main article is in, the, in the issue is written by Joel Stein, who himself is a Gen Xer and was a mainstay commentarian on VH1's various countdown and pop culture shows of the late 90s and early 2000s. And he follows the same pattern of that 1990 article, starting off with data and statistics about millennials' narcissism and fame obsession, he establishes everything that is wrong with the generation, laying it out that millennials saw boomer selfishness and said, hold my beer, becoming a generation that was notoriously entitled when they entered the workforce in the 2000s and 2010s. Stein cracks about this entitlement complex being that in which a millennial entry-level worker will email the CEO of the company to beg off some boring project. They are, in essence, a generation of Bartleby the Scriveners. He then delves into the media upon which millennials were raised—reality TV, teen pop, TRL, burgeoning social media—and how it's made them preening growth-stunted babies. But then he turns the entire premise on, his, on its head and says Millennial self involvement is more a continuation of a trend than a revolutionary thread from previous generations. They're not a new species, they're just mutated to adapt to that environment. He then goes on to cut a path similar to the one that David M. Gross and Safrina Scott did in 1990 when they were relating Generation X's workplace expectations and rejection of marketing. Granted, Stein then goes on to quote Tucker Max of all fucking people, but his overall point is important. Some of the moves of this generation is making are out of necessity. And the backlash against them? Well, a lot of that has more to do with them not playing by the rules than their actual lifestyle choices. Not that millennials don't make dumb lifestyle choices, Firefest a little, anybody? But whereas the boomers in power got annoyed by Gen X's independence after a latchkey childhood, Who knew? Millennials' need for attention is a direct result of well-documented coddling. Huh. Stein points out that many parents of millennials engage in pure parenting, negotiation instead of authority. It leaked into workplaces of that era, with their playground aspects and open spaces, against which, by the way, there's a backlash. Although education, which is always five to 10 years behind the trends. keeps pushing this open classroom and choice in a furniture model because I don't know, not having a couch in my classroom is why Austin can't seem to hand in a writing assignment. Anyway, Stein's right. It was inevitable because even more than boomers or Generation X, millennial sociological standing has been documented since they were very young. Reading his article, I went right back to 2000 when Frontline aired the episode The Merchants of Cool, and Malcolm Gladwell published The Tipping Point. Both of those works touched upon the way that millennials were uh, being catered to and how they would easily buy what was sold to them. They had purchasing power as children that had not been seen in decades, and the programming and marketing reflected that. Granted, a lot of this was timing, coming of age in the late 1990s boom filled with mass consumption and a candy-coated palette, credit to Amanda, they went down the keeping up with the Joneses hole their parents had set up very quickly and they did at a young age. As detailed in both Gladwell's book and the frontline episode, there were literal marketing consulting firms refer- referred to as cool hunters who were dedicated to either finding that next great trend or creating it. Now, this is a topic for a whole other episode because the way that millennials were marketed to as teenagers is actually really incredibly fascinating, but I bring it up because it helps inform what happened. And what happened to millennials is similar in some ways to what happened to Generation X, which is that both generations entered their 20s feeling like they were getting fucked over. Recessions, the September 11th attacks, the Iraq war, these events in one way or another pulled the rug out from under them. And when boomers told them to suck it up or said, Welcome to the real world, well, they probably had a right to be angry because Generation X got told the same thing. You cannot raise a generation the way they did and then get annoyed when they try to go into adulthood applying what you taught them. Therefore, we have reached a conclusion that was probably inevitable from the moment I started this show. Now, what we talk about when we talk about generations in the context I've been describing is really just looking at a criticism of a certain age range. Moreover, it's an age range that's really just a construct. The modern idea of a teenager really took hold in the post World War II era. In fact, the age of majority being 18 is a 20th century concept. The age of majority was 21 until the draft was lowered in 1942. And then the passage of the 26th Amendment that lowered the voting age to 18 didn't happen until 1971. So really, we've only had a little more than half a century of modern day adolescence. And the 20s, well, they've only been defined like this for about half a century. In the grand scheme of things, that's a blip, even if it seems like our society has accelerated at a rate faster than we can keep up. I'm going to close this out with a quote. So where are we now? Generalizing is dangerous. Call us the apathetic generation and we will become that. Say times are changing, nobody cares about prom queens and getting into the college of his choice anymore. Say that because it sounds good. It indicates a trend, it gives symmetry to history, and you make a movement and a unit out of a generation unified only in its common fragmentation. If there is a reason why we are where we are, it comes from where we have been. That quote comes from author Joyce Maynard, who is a novelist known for the novel To Die For, which was turned into the film with Nicole Kidman and Joaquin Phoenix in the mid-90s writing in the New York Times Magazine in an essay called An 18-Year-Old Looks Back on Life. It was published on April 23, 1972, and that certainly puts her smack in the middle of the baby boom generation. So perhaps our job as we grow older is to try and not make the same mistake that prior generations made which is to act as if it's somehow our duty to smack them around and act as if it's some sort of rite of passage, or to constantly act put out that the culture is shifted away from catering directly to us and that demographic shifts are somehow emblematic of some sort of, I don't know, societal downturn. It's very kumbaya of me to say it, and I'm honestly guilty of pissing and moaning about kids these days but that's probably more due to my spending my working days surrounded by teenagers instead of my getting cantankerous in my old age. Furthermore, since I do spend my days around teenagers and have a mission to, well, teach them because it's literally in the job title, I see a lot of promise in the future. It might be naively optimistic of me in some regard, but I'd rather spend the remainder of my career setting them up and helping them towards success than smacking them down and telling them to suck it up. And trust me, you can do that and still get them ready for the real world. I'll be back in a month with my next regular episode. I have an episode of Fallen Walls Open Curtains coming out in about a week with Andy Leyland talking about James Bond. But when I come back in March, I'll be joined by Michael Bailey to stay in the early 1990s and talk about one of the most seminal films of that decade, the 1990 Christian Slater classic, Pump Up the Volume. Until then, if you made it all the way through this episode, send some feedback my way. You can leave it on Facebook or you can email me and I'll drop it into a future episode. You can also check out the show notes for links to some of the articles and media that I mentioned in the show. And as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks internet radio network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff. That's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.